In the fall each year we all congregate The mouth all gathered at the church of Pilgrim The scriptures reading from the book of months in Our favorite verse, my God, a freshman Drunk and obnoxious, what Georgia faith Ain't nothing finer in the land Now the 3,000 of our best friends It's Saturday and that thing Welcome to the Saturday in Athens podcast. We're a Georgia Bulldogs show by dogs fans for dogs fans. I'm your host, Herschel Gurley, joined as always by my co-host, Boss Dog. And Boss, we're going to start off today. I have a question for you that I pretty much know the answer to, but you like t-shirts, right? Of course. Yeah, love t-shirts. It's like our uniform, I think. If we're going to be wearing something, we're wearing t-shirts, no doubt, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, then this episode is going to be perfect because the episode today is sponsored by Homefield Apparel, who puts out phenomenal t-shirts. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar with them, they are a collegiate apparel brand based out of Indianapolis. They make extremely comfortable stuff and they do a great job doing vintage looks for the different schools that they do shirts for. So they're currently doing this thing called Big News Saturday. You've been following that on Twitter, like on Saturdays and stuff? Yes, I have. And I'm very disappointed of who's in the lead right now. Yeah, so am I. So that's a great, I'm glad you bring that up. So they're doing <laughs> Big News Saturday and this is season two of it. And so every Saturday they release a new school on their site. It's like 16 straight weeks, new schools. We've been waiting with bated breath for them to release the dogs. And guess what? This is it. This is the week that the dog's apparel is going to be hot. So come Saturday, the 14th of August at noon Eastern, all the Georgia gear is going to be on the site. And did boss and I get a little sneak peek at some of the designs? Maybe. Were they excellent? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we are extremely fired up for it to come out. I've loved kind of watching big news Saturday each week and kind of keeping up with it as they do the tracker. So what boss brought up was, they track each week, like which team is in the lead or which school is in the lead. And that school down yonder in Gainesville is currently in the lead. Now, I mean, we can't have that on me. Like essentially what I've equated this to is this has now become the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, the August version. So (laughs) what we have to do is we have to bring the title back to Athens We have to win the cocktail party. So everybody on Saturday needs to mix up a cocktail, get on there and buy you some shirts. I mean, you're going to look fresh. You're going to feel great. Like first time I had ever kind of been exposed to home field was when Duke's Mayo took over the Belk Bowl and it became the Duke's Mayo Bowl. And they ended up partnering up with home field and home field did the Mayo ambassador shirts, which I'm the proud owner of. And (laughs) It fits excellent. It's super soft. I look super sharp when I go out and wear it. So I am really excited for everybody to see their Georgia gear. I think everybody's going to love it. Uh, I think boss and I may end up in debtor's prison after it's all said and done. Yeah. We're going to be in trouble with the women. Yeah. Yeah. The wives are not going to be happy when they get the bank statement, but Hey, it is what it is. They're going to be fresh and we got to have it in the, in the closet. So make sure y'all hop on their site at noon Eastern this coming Saturday, August 14th uh, and special gift of sorts to our listeners. If you're a new home field customer, we have a special code for you. That'll get you 15% off your order. So if you use discount code Saturday in Athens at checkout, uh, when you go to homefieldapparel.com, that will get you 15% off your order. And brother, based on what you and I are going to spend, that's that's going to be excellent. I mean, exactly. 15% ain't nothing to sneeze at, brother. That's a lot. So make sure you guys go on their site, homefieldapparel.com, noon on Saturday, scoop you up all the Georgia gear that you can. And when you get to that... Uh, when you get to that checkout point, make sure and put in that discount code Saturday in Athens, just like the show Saturday in Athens. Um, so yeah, we're excited about that. We're also really excited about our episode today. We had an opportunity to talk with former Georgia tight end Arthur Lynch, and he told us his story. And uh, I'm just going to let you kind of 
lead off on that boss. What'd you think of the, the chat with Arthur? Damn good dog is thrown around very loosely these days, but Arthur is the epitome of that. He's not just a damn good dog. He's a damn good person. I mean, his story is well known. After he graduated, went to the NFL, had the back injuries, and then tried to join the Marines and then got basically got rejected three times and then was given the final no-go and then joined the Army. Then we just found out that he's just now transitioning back to civilian life. But just the way he talks about his – every time he talks about Mark Richt, I mean, even just during the interview and then editing this, it still gets me choked up. Just a little, little misty, you know, cutting some onions. So he's just a really good person. And uh, God bless him going to live in that godforsaken orange town in Knoxville. So, I mean, I wish him <laughs> all the, the best going forward. But, man, that is not a place I would choose to live. But, hey, you know, uh, I wish him the best. and. He's got a great story, guys. I mean, if you don't know it, if you haven't had a chance to to hear it, you know, it's worth the the forty five minutes to listen to his story. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I I was so so impressed with with just not just his story, but his attitude throughout his story. Um, and he's really humble about it, and I feel like doesn't try to give himself a lot of credit. But I just feel like a lot of people put in his shoes in many of the situations in his life wouldn't have handled it as gracefully or um, had achieved the things that he had achieved given some of the things he's had to deal with. So I was really impressed with that. And man, to your point, he told the coach Rick story, which like he said, I'm sure has been told and people know, but hearing him tell it, like I was kind of like, you know, choking it back a little bit, talking to him. I mean, it, it, it really does hit you. And it also, I think, puts into perspective we're all obviously big big Georgia football fans and we love the dogs but what I love about this interview series is that it gives us and it gives fans the opportunity to see the human side of it and to see the effect that the coaches have on the players and that the players have on the coaches and what a lifelong relationship and bond that is and boy is that evident when Arthur talks about not just coach Rick but coach Lily and his teammates and um, man, I just, I really enjoyed it and I am really excited for everybody to hear it. Uh, so without further ado, here is Arthur Lynch telling his Georgia story. We are fired up to be joined today by Arthur Lynch. Arthur was a tight end for the dogs football team from 2009 to 2013. His senior year, he was a team captain and was named all SEC as a tight end. His football career led him to be a fifth-round pick in the 2014 NFL Draft by the Miami Dolphins. He recently finished up as an infantry officer in the United States Army, and he is now transitioning back into civilian life. Arthur, thank you for spending time with us, and welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate being here. looking forward to talking about Georgia football. Well, first off, thank you for your service, brother. Super admirable. And I know it was a long road for you to get there. So, so thank you for that. And congratulations on the, the transition back into civilian life. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. You know, people always say like, thank you for your service. And I do appreciate that, but yeah, I had a short stint in the military. So you know, I just, it was something I wanted to do. Um, it's something that I chose to do and enjoyed doing. So I, I saw it as a privilege and, you know, just, something that I wanted to accomplish and was able to do. So it had nothing to do with um, looking for thanks or gratitude, but just uh, do your part. You know how it goes. So I have to start by asking you this is how does a kid from Dartmouth, Mass end up in Athens, Georgia? That's a great question. And it's really a short story because it comes just down. It comes down to getting recruited and, the school that best fit me and best fit my family but you know obviously born and raised in Massachusetts uh grew up in Dartmouth went to Dartmouth High School which is a public high school uh, about an hour outside Boston and about 30 or 40 minutes outside Providence Rhode Island um I was very fortunate to grow up with a close knit of friends who just kind of all happened to be relatively athletic so we kind of came up together in youth leagues and then ultimately went and played high school ball together uh and then there was a kid named jordan tobin who was a year older than me and he was probably one of the better high school football players ever to come out of mass he ended up going to university of connecticut 
where he was an All-American and he too played in the NFL. Very, very, very unique. That is not the norm for Massachusetts High School football to have two kids end up going to Division One and playing NFL. But I say all that to say this, as I started getting recruited, a lot of schools would come in and see him because he was a year ahead of me in the recruiting process as, as he was the great above me. And I think a lot of uh, coaches, teams that were looking to take a flyer on JT saw that there was a kind of big, big body tight end uh, who was relatively athletic, blocking for him and running with him. So we were both on the same radar. And my like long-term goal was to always go division one uh, and, and ha have school paid for to help my mom out. But ultimately, I thought it was going to be like a Boston College type scenario. I committed to Boston College. My mother had gone there. My sister is a graduate of BC as well. She ran track there. And being a hometown kid, I grew up with kind of a you know dedicated fanfare to BC. Went to all the games. We had season tickets. But ultimately, you know, when I started getting recruited by other uh, schools, and I'm not sure if you got the part about my uh, high school running back Jordan Todman. He brought in a lot of recruiters because he was a year old than I. He ended up going to University of Connecticut where he was an All-American and he was drafted in the NFL as well. As well. Pretty out of uh, the ordinary for Massachusetts. But as other schools came in, I just kind of felt uh, I owed it to myself to just see what else was out there. And the first school I visited down south was University of Florida. And meeting Irv Meyer, meeting all those guys, they were at the, they were at the you know, very – the peak of college football at the time, I was so enamored with big time college football because let's face it, the SEC is a different level than anywhere else. As you can see now with about every single major school want, want, wants to get a piece of that pie with Oklahoma and Texas now coming in. Yep. But it was really the next, it was really the next day after visiting Florida, we drove up to uh, Athens, Georgia from Gainesville, my mom, my grandfather and myself. And the moment, the moment, I stepped on campus. I had this kind of feeling of, of, of that I was already at home. Uh, and then when you when you have a guy like Mark Rick and you have a, a guy like John Lilly, who was my position coach, who's now at University of North Carolina coaching tight ends, I think my family felt an immediate level of comfortability with those two. And we could tell pretty early on that what Coach Rick had already built there was continuing to build was special and unique because – you know, although they were a top five program, I think he put an emphasis on wanting to coach kids up to be the best possible football players they are, but also develop them into kind of you know, upstanding young men, student athletes, and citizens of the community. And so for me and my family, that was such a selling point. Uh, and although I didn't commit on the day, on the spot there, you know, after visiting, let's call it eight to 12 schools after that, uh, at the end of the summer, I, I, I felt obligated to visit Georgia one more time to make sure it wasn't kind of like this uh, love at first sight thing and, uh, or, or just kind of overrun with emotions. And then, and then I did uh, visit them right before my senior season started. And again, that same feeling it just resonated with me once again. And uh, I think looking back on it, any recruit to go through their time there and they can think they made the right choice, wrong choice. And if they had a successful career, they still might have doubts because they could have went somewhere else to have more success. But ultimately I followed my gut and what my heart was telling me. And that's kind of how I ended up at UGA. And it's, again, it was very unique for someone from Massachusetts to go down South. I think in today's recruiting world, it's a little less unique because we're so interconnected and it's very hard to hide recruits these days just because of the world we live in. But ultimately, you know, once, once I went there, it was just an easy sell. The tight end tradition, the, they were our preseason number one going into the 2008 season. And I just felt that that was the best opportunity for me. And I think overall it was a successful career. Um, and, you know, the relationships that I made both with my coaches and my teammates and just the, my peer students that, you know, uh, that didn't play football, but I still am close with today. You know, I have no regrets. It was probably the best decision I've ever made. So it's really interesting that you bring up the piece about um, how interconnected we are. I think Kirby had spoken first, first press conference, maybe Friday uh, after the first day of fall practice. And 
they had brought up the additions of Texas and Oklahoma to the conference and, you know, the romanticism of there no longer being regionalism in college football. And Kirby essentially said, I, I think that that ship has already sailed. I don't think there is regionalism. You know, it used to be if you went to if you grew up in Georgia, you went to the University of Georgia and, and vice versa all over the country. Right. So probably even 20 years ago, you being a kid from Dartmouth, you can go to B.C. I mean, that, that's just how the world worked, you know. But I think starting when you were starting your recruiting journey and certainly today, I think he's right. I, I just don't think that's as big a piece of the pie anymore. I think kids have so much more access to information and they see things with their own two eyes, whether it be online or on TV. And so these places that are far away don't seem, I think, as daunting. Um and I think you're seeing that in UGA's roster, right? Like they got kids from California and Texas and all over the place. And uh, I think that's even been a shift here recently. I've always had a bit of a soft spot in my heart for BC. I'll tell you this, Arthur, because I was a 5'10 quarterback in high school. So Doug Flutie was like my all-time idol. <laughs> oh, there's no doubt. Flutie Flakes. He was, uh, there was these like, uh, he, had, he had these uh, Frosted Flakes type cereal. It looked like a Wheaties block, box. They're called Flutie Flakes. And, my mom went to uh, went to school right before Doug Flutie did, and and again, when you talk about that regionality, uh, you know, I think it really started with the expansion of uh, cable television. You, you yeah. only get regional games, so we'd get like ABC would have the Penn State and like Syracuse, and BC was always on local television, and and so on and so forth. But as you know, technology has improved, and as you know, just traveling has become uh, more cost efficient and kids come up on these kind of like camps and recruiting circuits and you meet one kid from Texas or you meet another kid from Ohio and everyone's friends follows each other on Instagram, Twitter. We didn't really have that quite when I was going through. It was just starting 100% correct. I think, uh, as you know, they're obviously chasing ingrown, homegrown in-state talent, but you'd be hard pressed to find a top 10 team that doesn't have kids from, you know, East Coast, West Coast, South, North, and I and I think that's important because you know you don't want to pigeonhole, pigeonhole yourself as a program. Um, I think I was the first kid ever from Massachusetts to get recruited from get, get recruited to and signed with Georgia. There's, there's a guy named Wiggins who played tight end for years with um, I think Jermaine Wiggins' name. He played yeah. with the Patriots for years. He's from Dorchester. Yeah. He he originally went to Marshall and then transferred to. Um, Georgia when I think Jim Donnan came from Marshall, uh, if I'm correct. But, you know, I, again, I'm glad that this kind of regionality of college football isn't a thing anymore um, in terms of giving these kids an opportunity to not, not fear going far away from home. Because ultimately, the reason why I did it at the time is I, I was betting on myself. Um, I felt that like anything in life, if you want to be the best at anything that you do, right, you want to put yourself in a position where you're going to surround yourself with like-minded individuals who are the best at what they do. And University of Georgia, like Florida at the time, and, 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 and really most of the big-time SEC schools or Big Ten schools, they were always in the top 10 of recruiting. And you knew that the guys that you were getting recruited with and that you were going to be competing against once on campus. We're going to bring out the very best in you. If you were a competitor, if you weren't afraid to compete against your peers in a healthy, in a healthy way, that you were going to be a better player for it. And that's how I've always approached life, right? You want to surround yourself with people who are better than you because it's going to raise your level both from an athletic and intellectual standpoint. And I think that's why UGA was such a, good fit for me and I was glad I got out of my comfort zone because yes I grew as a football player but ultimately I think I grew more as a person because of how I had to adapt to a whole different culture a whole new way of life and meeting people that I normally never would have met otherwise and again I wouldn't have had it any other way yeah so how was that transition I mean you're moving a good bit away from home um, I would imagine you didn't have a ton of classmates that you grew up with in the Dartmouth area that were enrolling at UGA. So you probably didn't have like a built-in friend network. So it's a, it's a big transition. I mean, I think that's a big transition for every 18 year old going off to school. 
but you're going off and trying to balance being a division one athlete uh, while also keeping up with your studies and all these things. I mean, what was that transition like? Was it smooth or, or did it take some time? What, what was your journey like in that regard? It certainly wasn't smooth. You know, I got to play a little bit as a true freshman. I came in more than Charles. So we had a national, we had a natural kind of like a healthy rivalry early on. Um, he pushed me. I pushed him. Um, we had, uh, obviously I think, we had the best tight ends coach in, in college football and John Lilly. And I still think he is the best tight ends coach in, in college football um, because he was, you know, as a college football coach, you have to manage the expectations of the guys in your room and you have to manage, you know, their lives on and off the field in the classroom, their personal lives. And Lilly's his under his football IQ, uh, his social EQ and his compassion and empathy for us as people. He made us all feel uh, special in our own way. So, having him help the transition, but at a personal level, you know, you go down there. I didn't know what a cover two or cover three was the, the sophistication level of football in Massachusetts. High school football is not nearly what it, what my teammates had growing up in Georgia or Florida. So I had a big learning curve. If I said that I was happy the first two years, every single day, I would be lying. There is uh, you know, two really separate occasions where I thought about leaving to go back, uh, go back up north to either like a Penn State or Rutgers or Boston College. You know, football is always football. So there's always a certain level of comfort with it because it's a game that you, you love or you should love if you're playing at that level. But it was tough. And I doubted myself at times, but ultimately I stuck through it. And, you know, luckily, again, I, 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 I'll cite Mark Rick and John Lilly again because they, they put their faith in me and they said, hey, trust this process trust us when we say that we recruited you for a reason, but it was tough. Those first couple, you know, those first, let's call it like 12 to 18 months. And then once I decided to stay after my freshman year, I fully committed. I redshirted as a sophomore. And I was like, look, if I never play meaningful snaps as a starting tight end, I want to set myself apart and be a, be a guy on this football team that guys can look to like, well, he does it the right way because he's going to work. He's going to, you know, work hard in the weight room. He's going to get good grades. He's going to do what the coaches ask. You know, he's going to sit front row in the meetings. He's going to study. And for really that first two years, special teams and some situational plays was all I got. But I think I earned the respect and the trust of my coaches. And as coach Bobo used to say, is he would say, you, can only, you, you can't depend on the dependable. You can only depend on those who are dependable. And so I just kind of looked at that as a challenge, be like, well, I just want to be called upon to be a dependable guy, uh, whether that's a couple snaps here or there uh, in goal line situations, or whether that's you know, on punt team, on kickoff return. And ultimately, uh, I think that paid off. Uh, Orson Charles had a monster year, his junior year. Um, we were now a year separated because I redshirted. He left early. And when he left early, that gave me an opportunity to be the starter. And uh, when you have opportunities like that, it's the little things leading up to those, that, that opportunity and that, that, uh, that chance. And if you've done the little things right, usually you'll find success. And um, I think ultimately I found that success in my last two years as a starter. And I think it was because early on I made a, made a point to do the little things right. And that would be my piece of advice for any recruit coming in is whether they're from Georgia and they go to UGA or, or, or they're from California and they go to UGA or anywhere for that matter is earn the trust of your coaches by doing the little things right on a daily basis, both in the classroom, in the community and on the football field. And if you do those things right and the coaches earn your trust, things tend to go right for you. I love that. That's kind of the stay, stay ready so you don't have to get ready type attitude, right? And I feel like that, that's something in a lot of ways that's lost in today's culture is everybody wants things now. Uh, I've said before that I think the generation now is the microwave generation. Everybody wants things in 30 seconds. And, you know, success is, is a, a slow cooker proposition, right? Like it takes time and it takes effort and it can't just happen overnight. And I was going to say, man, listening to your take on that, that's a lot of maturity for 19, 20 year old kid to have in perspective, because I can imagine like most kids that play D one athletics, 
you were the stud in high school, right? Like it, you were the guy that played, you were the guy that the ball was going to. And so how tough was that then to transition into, you know what, I'm just going to put my head down and I'm going to work and my time will eventually come. I just, I, I, I think that should be highlighted because I think that's really admirable. And I don't think that would be the norm amongst most of your peers. Yeah. Well, it, it, again, in high school, I mentioned uh, Jordan Tobin. He's no longer in the NFL, but he's played seven years. And my, like what got me noticed early on, I think was, you know, my, my blocking ability. Um, I played defense. I was a long snapper. And, you know, I just loved to be on the field and play ball. Uh, I didn't really care. You know, obviously everyone likes to catch passes, score touchdowns, like, Anyone who says they don't, they don't, is there's just that's just their PR person telling them that. Like, obvi- <laughs> obviously, you want the ball and you want to be the guy, but I just wanted to be out there in the field as well. Um, and so when, you know, and, and I think I had a great parent, or a, a great great mom, and my grandfather was, you know, obviously a mentor to me, and he was always like, do whatever you can to set yourself apart in the field. And if it's, you know, long snapping, if it's, if it's coach, you know, if it's coaching up, you know, your younger teammates, if it's special teams, like whatever it is, uh, do it to the best of your ability. So yeah, it was my ego hurt a little bit. That wasn't like the guy right away. Sure. But you also get humbled pretty quick when you're going against Justin Houston, um, when you're going against guys like Sean Williams and, you know, you're going against guys like Geno Atkins every day. And then you, you got, you know, a, a tight end that comes in with you like Orson Charles. So you have to manage your expectations. You realize that you might not be the fastest, the strongest, the biggest. So you kind of find the things that um, you're good at. You try to master those things. And then you, you, you have to be humble enough to understand what your weaknesses are and work on that. You call it maturity, but I just call it more self-awareness. And, um, and and I think ultimately, you know, again, if you do the little things right, the the coaches will put their trust in you. And if the coaches put – if the players that you, both younger, older, and your peers look at you and they see that the coaches trust you, you know, you just earn like a certain level of respect that you're not going to get by just scoring touchdown or catching passes. And – I think that's how I set myself apart early on when I wasn't playing a ton and I was, you know, more of a situational type guy. What was it like playing for coach Rick and what's the impact that his influence has had on you as you've transitioned out of athletics and, and are living your professional life? Yeah. You know, I think coach Rick is, is such a unique human being. Uh, and I don't say that lightly, uh, Obviously, you know, his faith is well documented um, and, you know, his, his driving force is his relationship with, with, his, with his God and in Jesus Christ. And, you know, I'm not particularly the most religious person, um, but I always respected, you know, his commitment to that faith. And, and that was his driving force and how he wanted to be a football coach. And he truly treated every single one of us like he would treat his own son. Um, and to me, that, that was just so special because he was able to create a champ, a championship environment, um, while also focusing on the development of men and their character. Um, and, you know, there was one moment in particular, it was during, um, it was after my, it was after the UCF and I've told the story before and it's, it's been relatively well documented documented since he's retired but we uh we just went six and seven he was offered a job to go to university of miami and be the football coach there obviously his all mater and he sat us all down we thought he was going to leave and take the job uh, and he, he was in the hot seat we all had this thing called the hot seat that was usually meant for during camp and meant for seniors to kind of tell their own story Coach Rick, uh, in this hot seat was set up for this like back to school annual meeting that we had that always happened on like the day before classes started at UGA. And he started just kind of talking about his, you know, evolution as a, as a, as a man, as a, as a player to coach and then, or assistant coach under Bobby Bowden, um, which is, which is relevant today, you know, because obviously Coach Bowden has passed. 
yep. and, and ultimately be a head coach. And, you know, at one point in the speech, uh, you know, he said, raise your hand if you're raised, uh, raised by a single parent uh, or no parents at all, or, or and you know, half the room pretty much raised their hand. I was one of them because my parents are divorced. And he was like, my job, and, and I, he looked around, he paused, he looked around the room and he said, see, my job isn't just to make you all be the best football players that you can possibly be. My job is to mold each of you and help you grow as men so that in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, your son isn't sitting in this, in your same seat, raising his hand. And when he said that, I think there was just like a, a revelation that we all had that we were like, this guy's special and we would do anything that we can for him as players to help, you know, reach the ultimate goal to win a national championship. But there hasn't been a day that goes by where I don't think about coach Rick and think about that very conversation. And although I fall, I've fallen short many of times in my own character throughout life, he's been kind of a guiding, uh, a guiding, I don't know, almost like symbol and coach Shirley is the same way. And, and Mike Bobo, it's like, you know, I know the type of men that they are and the type of fathers they are and husbands they are. And it's just like, it's, although I, I don't have kids and I, and I, I'm not married. It, it's something that I strive to be on a daily basis and hope to be one day. And that's interesting because, you know, we're not even talking about football. We're just talking about life and coach Rick's, ability to break things down to make sure it comes back to little things in life was so unique and so special. And, you know, I, you know, I text coach all the time, just randomly when I'm thinking about him, just say, love you coach. Thanks for all you've done because he really is. He was such a transformative, transformative figure in my life. And I know I'm not alone in that regard. Well, first off, thank you for sharing that. Cause that's, I mean, I don't care how many times it's told. That's always an incredible story and always, I think really powerful. Um, and I also think it's relevant given his announcement, um, of being diagnosed with Parkinson's because one of the things that was so uplifting was seeing the response from players and coaches that had interacted with, um, with coach Rick. And I just feel like that is something that you really can't duplicate throughout life is is the impact that you have on people and so i just felt like that was um an incredible thing to see and i've told multiple people that i think that there's not anybody better equipped to handle that than him and he certainly will have the the people in his corner to make that happen oh there's no doubt there's no doubt. And I think, you know, just the way he's, again, you mentioned it, but the way he's handled the, uh, the diagnosis of Parkinson's and just the reaction of the, the, the outpouring support and love that his former players or former coaches, you know, or, or his former rivals uh, right. have public, publicly put on display says all you need to, tells you all you need to know about Coach Rick. And, you know, obviously you're kind of seeing, you know, his, he was, uh, you know, he was the mentee to Bobby, uh, Bobby Bowden's for years, right? And I think that you're seeing a similar type of reaction to the news about Coach Bowden today by the same types of people, his former players, his former coaches, his former, you know, rivals. And when you have that level of impact through coaching the game of football, you know you've done it right. And that's why I don't think Coach Rick has any regrets. And that's why I certainly don't have any regrets for choosing to go to Georgia and playing for Coach Rick. You know, it's interesting you tell that story about coming off the UCF season two, because obviously as a team on the field, you guys then transition and the 11 season and the 12 season are both fantastic years, right? I mean, they both end in Atlanta. And then 12 is as close as you can get to reaching the mountaintop without reaching it. And it seems like, and it's always this way, right? But the narrative is that those two teams were, were really talented and they certainly were, but it seems like from your story, there was also something else there, a kinship between players and coaches that helped catapult y'all into that, that level of success. Do you think that's, that's true? 
Yeah, I think there was a defining moment. I mean, I would like to think it was that meeting in that in the team meeting room that day. But I also do think, you know, I'd be selling the our, our, the 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 talent level that we had on the team short because we knew how much talent that we had and we knew the defense was going to be great. We knew the offense was going to be good. So I think ultimately when you saw the success in the two years after it made sense to us, but, but I think a lot of people outside the program didn't see that success that, uh, as imminent. Right. So right. ultimately, ultimately we knew what we had moving forward. And I think that's why we had the success and we were confident, we were confident in our own abilities, but Again, I, I think Coach Rick also saw that as well. And he had faith in us and we had faith in him because, you know, he stayed. He could have left and a bunch of guys could have transferred or whatever, what happened. Right? But we all trusted in one another. We trusted in the coaches and we trusted in Coach Rick. And it paid off. Again, it didn't pay off in the reward of championships. But as Coach Rick will tell you, you know, he would have loved he would have loved to win a championship, but I don't think there's he has any regret about how it all went down because he knew he lived his life in a way and coached a certain way. He was at peace with it, and so am I. And, and that's why that's why I love the guy. So you transitioned from your college career into chasing an NFL dream. First off, how surreal was that? to hear your name called on draft day. And what was, what was your NFL journey like? So anytime, anytime you play football or any sport, right. And you're, and you're a young player growing up, like in the backyard, doing whatever it is, like you dream of playing that sport professionally, especially a sport that you love. So it was surreal. Um, it was, you know, it was funny. I went to one of the one of the rivals of, of my hometown team, the Patriots. So yeah. I, I'd be lying to say if I, if my true childhood dream what was to play for the Pats, because obviously it was. But ultimately, at, at that stage, you're just so hyper focused on achieving a goal that you'll go anywhere and play for whoever. And I can't thank the Miami Dolphins enough for taking a chance on me. Uh, unfortunately, my NFL career just got off to the wrong foot. Basically, second practice, I was there uh, in OTAs. Um, I fractured my L4, L5 uh, lumbar spine. Um, was on injury reserve my, my rookie year. Uh, I was cleared to play at the end of the season after the season was over. So I was cleared to go for spring, it's not spring ball, but OTAs. Um, just, but yeah, it, the back just never healed correctly. Ended up getting cut going uh, in the second preseason, go to the Jets, finish preseason there. Then I get picked up by the Broncos. And then, you know, it just, my NFL career did not go the way I would have liked, but ultimately you, you have to become at peace with it. And I wrestled with the reality that football was going to be over for me uh, sooner rather than later. Um, and it's tough when your entire life uh, and goals have been surrounded by the game of football and you try to play at a high level for a long time and, or that's your goal at least, and you're unable to do so, it's, you know, it messes with your mental and emotional health. But ultimately, you, you get over it. You realize that some things aren't meant to be and you have to kind of reassess what you want out of life and, and what to do next. And I did. And, uh, you know, obviously I, although it didn't go the way I wanted it to, I got to meet so many awesome people. Some guys I'm still friends with today and I still got to strap on a helmet and uh, shoulder pads for a couple more years as a professional. So I have no regrets in that regard. So I'm glad you bring up the, the mental side of it because we had this conversation when we chatted with Rennie Curran and I think for any of us that play sports when it's such a dominant portion of your life, the transition away from that is tough. And we had talked to Rennie about in some ways you almost have to mourn it, right? Because you've, you've in a lot of ways lost a piece of yourself. You've lost a piece of your identity and 
what was that process like for you? And I mean, I, I, Brenny was pretty open, but I was like, you know, I don't know if it's something I've, I've fully gotten past yet. He's like, you know, that I still wake up certain days and you, you just want to strap it on and go, you know? And, um, I guess what was that transition like for you and was your journey similar to that? Does it, does it, is it akin to that description? It's certainly similar. I certainly had a, a level of resentment towards the game. Uh, and I, it was very tough for me to watch football at first because it's like, you're, it's like you start, you know, I don't want to be too dramatic, but you're like, you're, you're missing like a, it's like you're missing a limb, an emotional limb. And there's nothing quite like playing football because it's just the ultimate team game. And unlike other sports, right, um, there's no beer league adult football. If it is, right. it's definitely not safe, right? You can't right. go play right. can't play hockey. You can't play pickup basketball, tennis. It's like when it's over, it's over. And, there, you know, besides maybe Tom Brady, I don't think he's got an expiration date, but every player has an expiration date, right? Whether it's just age tells you to stop, whether it's your body, whether it's just your talent level. You have to find a way to transition into, you know, just take another military term, like a civilian life, right? And it's easier said than done. You can, like, the, the important thing that you can do is take the lessons that you learn in football and translate them to life because there are a lot of parallels. Uh, you know, everyone's going to face adversity. How are you going to handle that adversity? Can you work together as a cohesive unit with a group of individuals you may have stuff in common with, you may not? So I've been able to do that, I think, relatively successfully. But at the end of the day, there's nothing that's going to fill the void of being able to strap it on with guys that you know, you love, and you trust and play in front of, you know, however many fans. And, you know, whether you win or you lose, it's such an emotional roller coaster that you're so invested in. You know, it's just impossible to duplicate that feeling. And I think Rennie hit the nail on the head. There's going to be days – you know, that you wake up and you turn on ESPN and there's some football highlights, you're like, damn, the things I want to do just to strap it up one more day. Um, but that's life. You know what I mean? Like just some things don't work out uh, the way you want them to. And I try to look back on my time as a football player with, you know, with fondness and admiration as opposed to just like, what if, right. Um, and you do so by, harboring and growing the relationships with your former teammates and your former coaches. And I think at least my group of, you know, former teammates that I'm still close with have done a good job of that and will continue to uh, do a good job of that moving forward. So once you got done playing professional football, what was the transition like and the process like? I know it's been well-documented and I know it was quite the path to get there, but I just am so interested in it because tenacity just seems to be a theme throughout your story and it it wasn't much difference in your in your path to pursue being an officer in the United States Army so could you just tell us a little bit about that path and what your experience was like yeah absolutely so I, so after I got done I, I was with the Atlanta Falcons I kind of knew that I tweaked something in my back during that training camp I didn't really say anything Cause I was like, this is my last shot. Let's just play through it. Try to make the roster practice squad. And then like, you know, tell them that my back's messed up after I'm on the team type deal. So I go home, continue to train for a little bit, field a couple different calls. I go home after I got cut right in 2016 and I was working out one day and that tweak in my back that I felt in camp, I tweaked it again, this time worse, uh, slipped the disc in the same area of my L4, L5, that forced me to get a surgery so i had surgery in i think october of 2016 uh two and a half three weeks post-op uh, i woke up uh one morning at my then girlfriend's house and i was kind of like shivering shaking sweating the incision on my lower back had gotten infected infected with the strep virus so i had to go into emergency surgery to clean it out redo what they had done earlier. And I was, you know, on antibiotics for about six months, had a pick line in my arm, was hospitalized for a bit. And it was kind of a huge setback because although I was training to stay in shape in football, I, I had also started my application process to OCS for the Marines. Um, I had applied, you know, the first time was rejected for my initial back injury. Then I had this surgery. So I had to get 
letters from Elizabeth Warren, who was our uh, senator in Mass, my congressman Patrick Keating, playing to the, the DOD uh, that I was healthy and I was cleared by doctors. I applied to the Marines three more times. I was finally uh, like fully rejected, uh, saying that there was going to be no way I was going to serve in the Marine Corps. Uh, I had a mentor, uh, Colonel Ant Andy Anderson, who is um, a UGA grad himself. He's retired. He then said, let's, let's take you over to the Army Recruiting Office and try to start that process. So we did. Uh, after two or three more rejections from them, he was able to you know, get me a uh, a physical and an interview with a, with a military doctor in Boston. That doctor cleared me and I finally got accepted uh, and was able to enlist uh, for the OCS program at the army. But ultimately I've always been the type of person that if I set my mind to doing something, you know, I'm going to do everything in my power uh, to accomplish that goal. And I knew whether where there is a will, there's a way. Um, and there was risk joining the military. Obviously, there always is. But I knew that, you know, again, bet on myself, uh, take care of my body. And I was going to be able to, you know, go achieve the things I set out to achieve. But it was an uphill battle. And really, for those two years that I was trying to get in, there was a lot of self-doubt because there was things that were out of my control. So I you know, was working in the private sector, first in tech and then in finance. But ultimately, when I got that call from the medical uh, office saying that I was going to get my medical waiver, it was a massive relief. And uh, looking back on it now, I'm glad that I went through with it. I'm glad that I got to pursue it. And similar to the NFL, the best part about the military is the people that you surround yourself with and you go through training with and you develop relationships with. And those are the guys that you know I'm extremely close with and some of whom are, I'm as close with them as, as, I, as I am with some of my former teammates because there's a similar bond that you create when you're going through those things, those different moments of adversity while you're trying to achieve that goal that's very similar in the military as it is in football. And for those that don't know, please tell them where Officer Candidacy School for the United States Army is. Oh, it's uh, in good old Fort Benning, Georgia, home of the infantry and also the armor, which is about... It's about uh, two and a half hours south of Atlanta, good old Columbus, Georgia. It's kind of as if, you know, I was living in Boston when I applied to the military. So the fact that basic training brought me all the way back to the great state of Georgia, uh, it, it, was, it was a full circle of life type moment, but uh, I enjoyed it. Very, again, it's when you're kind of sitting at a desk job and you're doing finance, or you're doing tech or you're doing whatever it is. And you and you were you played football or really any competitive sport at a high level, you miss you, you miss that like itch for a physical and mental challenge on a day to day basis, and that's kind of part of the other reason I wanted to join the military, uh, along with a number of different reasons. But and you know ultimately I fulfilled that that goal. I just think there's such beautiful symmetry to the fact that two of your big life transitions both occur in the state of Georgia. It seems to have like some type of visceral anchor for you. And I just love that. I think that's beautiful. Oh, it's, oh, it's an anchor. Right. And I, I got some of my best friends from the team, you know, uh, Aaron Murray, Christian Robinson and Ty Fricks, they, they're all convinced I'm going to end up in Georgia long-term, but my, my <laughs> heart does, my, my heart does pull me back to Boston and to be close to my family, but that's probably a conversation for a different day. But there's no doubt in my mind that I called you, that George is my second home. Yeah, and I may be misremembering this, but I am almost positive that there is a strong tie for Georgia football history to Columbus, too, because I am pretty sure for like the first 30 years of the Deep South Soldiers rivalry, that's where the Georgia Auburn game was played, was in Columbus. I think they played it at like Columbus Memorial Stadium, neutral site yep. game. Yep, you're absolutely right. It's funny because Columbus, you know, there's not many places in Georgia that aren't flying the G, but yeah. in, in Columbus, it's a pretty good split. It's like half Auburn, half Georgia. You might get an Alabama flag here or there, but it's a, it's a, it's a very unique city. Obviously it's, 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 it's in Georgia. So Georgia is the majority of people there are Georgia fans, but you see a lot of Auburn support. And uh, I'm pretty sure one year we actually stayed and when we were playing on the planes, I think it was that 2011, no, Maybe it was 2012. It was 2012. We played them at their place two years ago. 
I want to close with you how we close all of our interviews. We do something called the Smart 16. It's like a rapid fire set of questions in honor of Coach Smart. So I'm going to shoot those at you and you, you fire them back at me. Sound good? Yep, sounds good. All right, question one. What is your middle name? Charles. Who is your favorite teammate of all time? Favorite teammate, man, Aaron Murray. What is your favorite game that you've ever played in? Favorite game I've ever played in? Probably LSU 2013. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's been a, that's been a common answer amongst different folks. That's a good one. All right, what is your favorite rivalry that the dogs have? Florida, without question. What is your favorite away stadium in the Southeastern Conference? I hate Auburn with a passion, but playing there is pretty fun. <laughs> All right. What is the loudest home game you ever played at between the hedges? Probably LSU 13. Do I get three? Let me give me three. Yeah. Oh, I'll give you three. All right. So Auburn 2011 when Rambo got the pick six was probably the loudest moment I've ever heard Sanford. But the loudest consistent like 60-minute ball game that there was was probably South Carolina LSU in 2013. Oh, yeah. I feel like the South Carolina games don't get as much credit as they should, but especially those teams that like Lattimore was on when coach Burrier was still there. Like there were some really heated high scoring games. Like that's a good one. That's a really good one. Okay. You get to choose the headlining act at the Georgia theater. Who do you choose? Headlining act of Georgia theater. It could be anybody, anybody you want. Oh, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, boy, that'd be a good one. Man, they'd have shut Athens down if the boss came to town. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. They'd shut it down, all right. I'd shut it down. <laughs> all right, what is the cocktail you're mixing for the world's largest outdoor cocktail party? Uh, probably tequila soda. All right, I'm not trying to get you in trouble here, but you're back in Athens for one meal. What's the one place you're going to eat in Athens? The Mayflower. Oh, that's a good one. You know, you're the first person that's given that answer, which is surprising. That's a fantastic one. Yeah, that, that was our that was our post-win Sunday breakfast spot for me and Christian and Taff Ricks. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, did you have any game day superstitions when you played? Game day superstitions. Yes, I would always go sit on the bench and just kind of be collect my thoughts, say a prayer real quick at the at, where the tight end sat to the left on the edge of the bench. I would sit there. Also, when the team was about to go out, run to the tunnel, I would always want to be the last person out, and I would say a little something and touch the big bulldog that was running out, the big bulldog statue. Okay, what is your favorite Sanford Stadium pregame tradition, whether it is dog walk or lone trumpeter or Larry Munson coming over the airwaves? What's your favorite? Oh, and when Bob O'Reilly starts playing, you, I, I like I, I, I turn into a, a demonic spirit. It's like, I'm like <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh, I'm like it's, let's go crack some heads. You know what I mean? Oh, that's fantastic. All right, black jerseys, yes or no? I never got to wear them. Uh, I, I wore the black helmets in Florida, and it, it got ugly quick. So just give me the silver britches, silver britches uh, home red, and a dog's win, and I'm good. Okay, what is the loss you're still not over? Uh, 2012 Alabama, not even close. Yeah, that's a, that's been a popular run. That and the 17 national title game for our non non player guests have have been the two most popular answers. So, uh, oh yeah, I bet I bet. But yeah, it's just 2012 was heartbreaking. My Nebraska, my senior year was tough too, but that's just because that was my last one. But well, I know it was a loss in 2012, and I know it still stings. But didn't you throw a touchdown pass in that game? Not the first down pass, not a touchdown. First you can tell pass. people. You can tell. You can tell people. You can tell people it was a touchdown. I'll, I'll start I, telling people it was. I thought it was on the fake punt. Well, hey, brother, the farther we get away, the bigger that story can get, right? Who's oh, going to go fact check you? <laughs> Nobody. I'll, I'll just. I'll just say fake news if, if they do. Yeah. Okay. So I would imagine 
or I'm hoping that there's a solid answer to this now since you transitioned down south for your college years. But question 14 is, how do you order your hash browns at the Waffle House? I think I just order them normal, straight. Am I supposed, is there, uh, yeah, is there supposed to be a specific way? Oh, brother, there's like a, there's like a whole menu of ways you can order your hash browns. Like you could go scattered, smothered, covered, and peppered, which is generally how I go. So you're going to get cheese, onions, jalapeno peppers, and have them spread out. Or you could get them, you could get them diced also. So you throw a little diced tomato in there. A lot of ways you can go with this. You get them all out. They'll put some country gravy on it in addition to all the other things I've just listed. And there's just a litany of ways you can have it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to have to Google the options because I always just got them straight up. Like I get like my grits. I do cheese grits, but that's different, different ball game. Well, hey, you're going to you're going to be in Knoxville. There's plenty of Waffle Houses in the greater Knoxville area. You guys start making a trip every once in a while and start start spreading your spreading your hash brown wings. <laughs> I, I, I think I got to might, have, might, might have to do that this next weekend once I'm settled down. Heck yeah. All right. Well, we're going to be anxiously waiting your report back on that. All right. Perfect. Okay. Question 15. There ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing noon kickoffs. Yes or no? Yes. 330 so, CBS game is the, is the best college football slotted time and broadcast without question. So now, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but when you were there, Y'all were still staying Lake Lanier before games, right? Correct. So how long was that drive in, and what was the wake-up time for noon kick? Wake-up time was probably like five, I think. Oh, oh, nope. That's a hard pass. Yeah. I actually I, – I, I'm always up early. It doesn't matter. But, yeah, it's awful. I actually liked the, the Lake Lanier drive because you could just kind of like – I would just be hammering music the whole time and getting in the zone. But – yeah, it's, it was an early wake-up for sure. Okay, last question, and we kind of had to shift this because there have been announcements about it recently, but college football playoff, happy with the planned expansion to 12 teams or fine how it is? I think, I think the more the merrier. I grew up in the world of 1AA football. Uh, yeah. Obviously not Boston College. Boston College is, is you know, it's, it's a Division One program, but – you know, like the Holy Cross, the Patriot Leagues, the Ivy Leagues can't play in the tournament, but, you know, UMass, Amherst, all those. So that was a lot of the college football that I grew up on because uh, it was always good football to go to. And it was cheap. Yeah. So I love I love their tournament style play. I always thought that that was what it should be, and they should adjust the regular season schedule to make that work. So I think 12 is perfect. And it also gives – a, a school like Cincinnati or like Boise State or just those perennial kind of n- not mid-majors but you know what I mean like not the not the blue bloods but who have always had good programs to get a shot and I think every kid that plays division one football should their team at the beginning of the year should be like if we can we control our own destiny if we if we go undefeated regular season we, we could be a top 12 team and I think that's important for the game I don't know what the consensus is amongst the coaches, but at the end of the day, it should be about the players. And I think it's a good thing. And I think it's going to make the college football season more exciting. Yeah, I agree with that. I I love that there's more access. And I mean, think about it, brother. That's how we do playoffs at every other level of football. High school, we do a playoff structure that's much more similar to 12 than it is to four or how it was two before. So I love it. I, I think it's great. I mean, how cool would it have been? They, they did like a mock bracket on what it would have looked like last year. And some of the matchups, you're just going, oh, this would have been absolutely electric. Like Coastal going into somebody's home field and playing and like, I don't know, it just would have been, it would have been a ton of fun. So I'm all for it. Oh, it I, I agree. It would, it, would have been, it would have been fantastic. And, and, and also ultimately, like with all these, with the change in these conferences, it creates and heightens the level of competition and your regular season scheduling because you don't have to go undefeated or just one loss to be in the top four, right? Like if you play a gauntlet of a schedule and you got three losses, but you've beaten like four top five teams yep. and you're like eight and three and you're number 12, you got a shot, right? So I think that's, I think that's huge. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that, but it will reward people who schedule well. So like, 
speaking to Coach Bowden today, like he was, I'll play anybody anywhere, anytime. And that's kind of how he built Florida State's brand. And especially in the early days, I think there was a story where they played in the late seventies, early eighties, they played LSU like five years in a row, like at LSU. (laughs) So he really was like, he put his money where his mouth was on that. And I love that. I think it's great that teams are rewarded for, for playing up and for playing good games as opposed to the buy games and all those type things. So yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I hadn't really thought about that. There's no doubt. The better, the better, the better the competition, the better competition you play, the better product you're going to get in the field out of your players. All right. Well, you're off the hot seat. That's the smart 16. Thank you for indulging us with that. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Seth. All right, Arthur. Well, we appreciate you coming on and tell your story, brother. We certainly enjoyed hearing it. Um, you are certainly a damn good dog. And uh, as we always do to close out our show, we always say, go dogs, sick them. Go dogs, sick them. Hey, George is better now.